there can be great power in one word. Great implications can stem from one word. For example, how many tickets are represented in this room because we ignored the one word, stop? Think about the the ramifications in our world that come from a pursuit of or a lack of the word peace. Think about how all of our lives have been changed. The trajectory of our lives altered by that one word, love. Think about the hush and stillness in a courtroom and the long-term effects when the foreman of the jury stands up and says, guilty. There can be great implications with just one word. Well, this morning we're going to study a passage of Scripture where Jesus utters one word on the cross. And we're going to step back and examine the implications and the ramifications of that one word. And as we look at this together today, we will be amazed at all that one word means. And so keeping that in mind, turn with me to John chapter 19. John chapter 19. We have been working through a series of sermons on the seven sayings of Jesus from the cross. We've made it to saying number six. We'll look at saying number seven next Sunday, Lord willing, and then the next Sunday will be Easter. And so we are working our way up to Easter Sunday by thinking about the crucifixion as we prepare to celebrate on Easter the resurrection. And we've made it to, again, saying number 6. Look there with me, John chapter 19, verse 30. I want to ask you this morning if you are physically able to please stand with me in honor of the reading of God's Word. The Bible says that, All Scripture is breathed out by God. God breathed. And so what we have here in our hands is the God-breathed Word from heaven. Amen? We have the Bible truth with no mixture of error. If God speaks and God is perfect, then God doesn't make errors, right? And God has spoken in our Word, and it is without error. It is a solid rock to build our lives upon, to build our church upon. I'm grateful for the Bible today. Now look with me in John chapter 19, verse 30. The Bible says, When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished. Now you say, wait, wait, that's three words. Well, uh, in the original Greek language which which this was written, it is one word, translated into three. It is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Let's pray together uh, this morning. 
Father, we are amazed at your greatness, your majesty, your holiness. Lord, you are awesome. And we're grateful that you sent your son to shed his precious blood for us. We're grateful that because of what Jesus did by dying on the cross and being raised from the dead, that no power of hell, no scheme of man can ever pluck us from your hand. We praise you for those spiritual realities that are ours in Christ. And we come to this moment where we are studying your word together as a faith family. And Lord, I just pray that your spirit would move in our midst, that you would touch our hearts, change our lives, illuminate us that we might see the truths in this passage and in your word, and God, give us the grace to to live according to what we study today. Lord, we don't want just more head information. Lord, we want to see life transformation. So, So Lord, would you move with power, by your Spirit, in our congregation today. Lord, I ask you that you would anoint me with power and with clarity of speech. And I pray that you would anoint the hearers as we come face to face with you speaking to us in your word. We love you, we praise you, we exalt you. Lord, I ask that you would establish my steps today in your word. And we ask and pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. You can be seated. The Bible records that Jesus made seven statements while he was hanging upon the cross. And at the very end, he made three statements in rapid succession. Last week, we studied how Jesus said, I thirst. And I believe he wanted uh, some liquid to moisten his lips and his mouth and his throat so he could make the final two statements. And this week we'll see where he said, it is finished. And next week we'll see where he breathed his last, uh, right after he said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. But this morning I want us to focus on that phrase, it is finished. Three words in the English, but in Greek it's just one. Uh, Tetelestai is the original Greek word, and there's so much in that, and we'll get to that uh, as we work our way through the text. But I want you to see this morning that there is power in one word. There are great implications, great ramifications uh, with this one word. Charles Spurgeon, one of my heroes in the faith, great English preacher of the 19th century, said, it would need, this word would need all the other words that ever were spoken or ever can be spoken to explain this one word. It is altogether immeasurable. It is high, I cannot attain to it. It is deep, I cannot fathom it. A.W. Pink said this, It is finished is but one word in the original. Yet in that word is wrapped up, listen, the gospel of God. In that word is contained the ground of the believer's assurance. In that word is discovered the sum of all joy and the very spirit of all divine consolation. So Spurgeon and Pink say, that in this one word we see the essence of the gospel, the essence of the good news message of God's word. And so what I want to do is I want to help us to think about the full import of this one word. 
And what we're going to do is going to be a little bit different. We're going to step back together today, and we're going to look at the big picture of the Bible, starting back in Genesis. So just get comfortable, okay? But we're going to go through it quickly, and I want to show you all that is wrapped up in this phrase when Jesus said, it is finished, to telestai. I want us to understand, again, the full import of that word. So just kind of follow along with me there in your notes. I want to walk you through an outline that leads us to a crescendo of understanding this word. First of all, I want us to think about salvation planned. Salvation planned. Over in Acts chapter 2, verse 22 and 23, as Peter is preaching on the day of Pentecost, Peter says to those listening that Jesus was delivered up, or Jesus was crucified according to, listen, the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. In the book of Revelation, we see that the Bible says Jesus was crucified before the foundations of the world. In other words, before there was ever a created order, before there was ever uh, humanity, God had a rescue plan in place. Because you see, God is omniscient, and God knows everything, and God knew that the humans that he created would rebel. He knew that they would fall into sin. He knew that they would run from him and worship the creation rather than worshiping the creator of it all. And so before God ever spoke the universe into existence, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, our triune God had a rescue plan, a salvation plan, a redemption plan already in place. And it was as if the crucifixion had already happened because God had planned it out and God was going to come through. Isn't that wonderful? So before you ever send your first sin, God had a rescue plan in place. Before the foundations of the creation, salvation had been planned in the gracious, sovereign heart of God. Wow. And so to understand the Bible to understand its message, to understand this word, to tell us die, it is finished. You've got to understand that salvation was planned before the universe even came into existence. But there's another thing you need to understand. Not only do we see salvation planned, we see salvation needed. Salvation needed. God spoke the heavens and earth into existence the power of our omnipotent God to be able to speak creation into existence, to just speak, and there were stars, and there were galaxies, and there was a planet called Earth, and there was Mount Everest, and Grand Canyon, and and God just spoke, and it was there. Wow! And then God made the first man, Adam, and the first woman, Eve. And by the way, just so you know where your preacher stands, I believe Adam and Eve were real, literal people that God made. They were really the first man and the first woman on the face of the earth. You know why I believe that? Because the Bible tells me so. And God made Adam, and, and God made Eve, and God put them in a paradise, a place called the Garden of Eden. And God told them to enjoy His creation, to 
to, to exercise dominion over the created order, to enjoy fellowship with one another and fellowship with him. And he gave them just one commandment, one rule, uh, one, one, one thing. He forbidden them of one thing. Let me say it like that. One prohibition. He said there's this tree that you don't need to eat from. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And that's the tree I don't want you to eat from. He said, wait, why would God even put a tree in the garden to allow them to sin? It's a great question. And here's what I believe the answer to that question is. Every time that Adam and Eve walked by that tree and looked at it and said, we're going to obey God, they were demonstrating their love and trust in God. You remember what Jesus said in John 14, 15, if you love me, keep my commandments. The way you demonstrate your love to God is by doing what he says. Every time you obey him, you're saying, God, I love you, and God, I trust that what you say is what's best for my life. So every time Adam and Eve walked by that tree and said, we will not eat, they were saying, God, we love you, and God, we trust you. But one day, the serpent entered the garden, the devil took on the form of a serpent and he tempted Eve and he twisted the words of God and put doubt in her mind. Has God really said that you can't eat of this tree? And one thing led to another and Eve took a bite of that fruit and she gave it to Adam and Adam took a bite of that fruit and that's when sin entered the world and everything changed. The created order was cursed by God Death entered the world. Instead of living in perfection and in fellowship with one another and with God, their fellowship with God was was fractured. Enmity entered their fellowship with one another. Sin entered the world and began to wreak havoc. And the Bible says that all of us have followed in the footsteps of Adam and Eve. Do you know that? Listen to what the Bible says in Romans chapter 5, verse 12. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men. Why? Because all sinned. The reason we all deserve death, the reason we all deserve separation from God, the reason we all deserve God's wrath and punishment is because we've all sinned against a perfectly, infinitely holy God. The Bible says, there is none righteous, no, not one. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We have all missed the mark. We have all disobeyed. We've all done things God's told us not to do. And we've all failed to do things that God has told us to do. We are all sinners. And it all goes back to the garden when sin entered the world. So salvation was planned, and we see from Genesis 3 and Romans 3 and these other verses, Romans 5, that salvation is desperately needed. You and I have fallen. We have rebelled against God. Sin has separated us from God. Sin is like a cancer that that ruins our lives and affects us to the core of our being. And we've all sinned. We need salvation. So salvation is planned and and salvation is needed. But third, I want you to see that salvation was promised. Remember, God had a plan in place. And in Genesis 12, we begin to see the outlines of this plan. We, We begin to see 
the plan of God to save sinners come into existence, come into fruition, if you will. Look what it says in Genesis chapter 12, verse 1. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. And so God appeared to Abram and said, Abram, I'm going to give you and your wife a son, which was a big thing because... Abram and and Sarah hadn't been able to conceive. And they were advanced in years beyond conception years. And yet God said, I'm going to give you a son. And then I'm going to, through your descendants, build a great nation. I'm going to give this great nation, which we know is the Jewish nation. We're going to give the Jewish people, we're going to give them a, a land, a promised land in which to live. And here's the deal, Abram. Here's the, the end game of why I'm doing this. I'm going to, through your descendants, provide blessing for all the people groups on the face of the earth. All the families, all the nations, every tribe, every tongue will have available blessing through your descendants. And you might say, wait, how in the world did that happen? How, did that, how, how could everyone be blessed through the descendants of Abraham? Well, here's the deal. Abraham and Sarah had Isaac, and Isaac had Jacob, and Jacob had Joseph, and and God began to grow the descendants of Abraham into a great and mighty nation, the Jewish people. And the Old Testament is the record of God uh, providing for them and, and protecting them and preserving them. Even when they were unfaithful, God preserves them and keeps a remnant of of faithful followers from the Jewish people. And then one day through the Jewish people, God sent his own son, a Messiah, the Messiah, named Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ went to the cross and died for the sins of the world. And because Jesus died on the cross, salvation is available. The blessing of salvation is available to anybody from any tribe, any tongue, any nation, any language, anyone can be saved if they embrace Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. So all the families of the earth have potential blessing, the potential blessing of salvation available through Jesus who came through the Jewish people. And so God came and promised salvation. He promised that all the nations of the earth would have this this available salvation this, this potential blessing if they would embrace Christ. So God, way back in Genesis 12, promised redemption. Promised rescue for everyone that would believe. But not only do we see salvation planned and salvation needed and salvation promised, but we also see salvation foreshadowed. And here's where it just gets so interesting. In the Old Testament, God begins to put into place pictures or symbols or types that pointed to the future person and work of Jesus Christ. So God promised salvation to Abraham, and then God began to put all of these these foreshadowings in place to let them know who was coming and what he would do when he came. So how did God foreshadow Salvation. How did God foreshadow even the cross and the finished work of Christ? Well, first of all, God foreshadowed salvation through prophecies. 
in the very chapter that sin enters the world, Genesis chapter 3, God already had a rescue plan in place. And in Genesis 3.15, we see the first prophecy of Christ. He, He speaks to the serpent and God says, One day, from the seed of a woman, one will come who will crush your head. Satan, you will not win. One is coming who will deal you a mortal blow. And way back in Genesis 3, we see the prophetic declaration that one would come through the seed of a woman. We know that being Jesus through the seed of the Virgin Mary. And he would totally, completely defeat Satan. So there's a prophecy there in Genesis 3.15. And as we read through the Bible, listen to this. We read prophecy after prophecy about so many things concerning Christ. For example, we read prophecies about where the Messiah would be born. Micah 5.2 tells us he would be born in Bethlehem. Where was Jesus born? That wasn't a trick question. Where was he born? Bethlehem. Isaiah 7.14 speaks of the nature of his birth. About 700 years before the time of Christ, we learn that Jesus would be born of a virgin. Isaiah 60, verses 1 through 6, we see circumstances surrounding his birth, that kings would come to his birth and and present gifts. It even names the gifts that the wise men would give. Prophesied. His betrayal is prophesied in Psalm 41, 9 and Zechariah 11, 12 and 13. His entrance into Jerusalem is prophesied in Zechariah 9, verse 9. And his crucifixion is so clearly depicted and and pictured in in places like Isaiah 53 and Psalm 22. And listen, those are just a few of the prophecies of the Old Testament. And it is amazing to read these prophecies and see how they were perfectly fulfilled by Christ in Christ, and how the entire Bible is just one amazing story of God's redemptive love. A lot of people read the Bible like it's, you know, just this unconnected book of different ancient writings, but it's one book because God gave it to us all. God spoke these words through human instruments, and it's just one book, one story of God's rescue plan. And we see in the Bible these wonderful prophecies of what Jesus Christ would do. We went on a little quick trip at the end of this week with my family and, and we were riding at night and, and Claire began to read Isaiah 53 to our kids, which is a, a clear picture of Jesus Christ being crucified. The Bible says he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brings us peace All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid upon him the iniquity of us all. This powerful passage. And and, and Claire began to read. And then Caleb said, can can I read? And and, and Caleb began to read. And then then Cameron said, can I read? I, I want you to know. I was sitting there driving the van. I want you to know that hearing your, your kids read Isaiah 53 is is powerful. Reading about Jesus in a prophetic passage given by God through Isaiah hundreds of years before Jesus Christ actually walked on the face of the earth. Wow. And so, not only did God promise to to Abraham, I'm going to build a great nation and and send a Savior that will bless all the nations of the earth. He said, "I'm I'm going to keep on prophesying the specifics 
about the Messiah who will come. And so God foreshadowed salvation through prophecies. But also, and this is so exciting, I love this part of it. God foreshadowed salvation through types or pictures. God gives us little moments, little glimpses of Jesus in the Old Testament. And by the way, the Old Testament's all about Jesus. Do you remember when Jesus was on the road to Emmaus after his resurrection, speaking with two disciples that were hanging their head, they didn't understand, they didn't know Jesus was alive? And the Bible says that Jesus started walking through the Old Testament, teaching them the things concerning himself. I would have loved to have been at that Bible study. And I believe that Jesus was pointing them to some of the same things we're talking about this morning. And there are these beautiful pictures or symbols in the Bible. For example, in Genesis chapter 7, we see that God had planned to flood the entire earth, destroy humanity because of the wickedness of the human race. But God, in His faithfulness, promised to preserve a remnant through Noah and his family so he could rebuild the human race, rebuild his people, so he could send a Messiah through his people. We see that God gave specific instructions to Noah how to build the ark, the specifications, and then on that day when God was about to, to flood the entire earth, the Bible says that they got inside and it says God shut the door. In other words, that ark is a picture of God in His grace saving people from wrath and destruction. And over in 1 Peter chapter 3, we see that, that, that there's a correspondence between the ark and between the salvation that Jesus Christ offers us in, in 1 Peter chapter 3, the end of that chapter. In other words, Jesus is our shelter from the storm of God's wrath. The ark is a picture of God saving people from His wrath. And Jesus is our ark. He's the one that saves us from God's wrath. Over in Numbers chapter 20, there's a story about God giving water to the nation of Israel. They were in the wilderness and they were thirsty and they were murmuring. And so God said to Moses, speak to the rock and water will come forth. But you remember Moses was irritated with the people and Moses struck the rock with his staff. And because of that, God said, Moses, you'll not enter the promised land. Because you didn't speak the rock, because you, you struck the rock, you, you, because you, you disobeyed me in this, you're not going to the promised land. You'll get to see it, but you won't enter it. And, and we read that and say, boy, that's harsh, isn't it? I mean, Moses was a friend of God, the Bible says. Moses put up with the the insolence and the rebellion of the Hebrew people all through the wilderness wanderings. And instead of speaking, he taps the rock or hits the rock. Water still comes out. I mean, what's the big deal? Well, here's the big deal. 1 Corinthians 10, 3 and 4 say that the rock was Christ. That rock giving water was a picture of the ministry of Jesus Christ. In other words, Jesus is the one that quenches thirsty souls. And because Moses did not take that seriously, he did not enter the promised land. It gets better. Over in Exodus chapter 12, 
God gives his people instructions about the Passover. He was about to deliver them from, from Egyptian bondage and slavery. And he was going to send his tenth plague, which would be the death of the firstborn. The death angel would go through the entire land of Egypt and kill firstborn cattle, firstborn sons in every household. Devastating judgment from God on Egypt. And it would be the judgment that would get Pharaoh's attention where Pharaoh would say, Get out of here! Go! To Moses and the Hebrew people. But you say, well, how were the Hebrew people protected from the death angel? How could they make sure that their firstborn would not be killed on that night? Well, God gave them some instructions. He told them to take a lamb, a Passover lamb. And to to kill that lamb and take the blood of the lamb and put it on their doorpost with a hyssop branch. And the Lord told them, When the death angel comes through to kill the firstborn, if he comes to your house, listen, and he sees the blood on the door, he will pass over your house. And you will not experience that devastating judgment. You will be saved. You will be passed over. Well, guess what it says in 1 Corinthians 5, verse 7. The Bible says that Christ is our Passover. He's our Passover lamb. In other words, listen... If you know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, if you are covered by the blood of Jesus Christ because you're a follower of Christ on Judgment Day when God sends people to their everlasting separation in that awful place called hell, if He sees the blood over your life, He will not send you to hell. He will pass over you and you will be saved because of the blood of Jesus. And so that, that, that precious little... Lamb in in Exodus 12 is a picture of Jesus, the one who was perfect and and sinless, who would shed his blood for us so God would pass over us in judgment. Isn't that glorious? It's a picture of Jesus. One of my favorites is found in Numbers 21, verses 4 through 9. The the Hebrew people rebel against God, and so God sends fiery fiery serpents into the camp. And and these fiery serpents, I hate snakes. Do you hate snakes? And these fiery servants began to bite people and they drop dead. And they run to Moses. Moses, would you pray to God that he would take away this judgment? We're all going to die. And so Moses goes to God and says, God, would you, would you, would you stay your hand? We can't, we can't bear up under all these fiery serpents. And God said, here's what you need to do. I want you to get a... A simile of a serpent, a bronze serpent. Make a simile of a bronze serpent and wrap it around a bronze pole. I want you to lift it high in the middle of the camp. And if someone is bitten by a snake, all they have to do is look to that serpent and they will live. And so just imagine, word comes to the camp. If you get bit, evangelism, if you get bit, look to the serpent. And you walk into your, your tent and You lift up a blanket and bam, you're struck by a poisonous snake. You run outside of your tent and you look at that bronze serpent on a pole and you are healed. You do not die. So what's that got to do with Jesus? Over in John chapter 3, Jesus says, As the serpent was lifted up on the pole, 
even so must I be lifted up. Speaking of the cross, the implication is clear. If you look at the serpent, you live. If you look to me, if you believe in me, you live. You do not, you do not experience judgment. You are saved from sin, saved from the wrath of God. Look to Jesus and live. In other words, Jesus is our cure from the bite of the deadly serpent named Satan. And then we see in the Bible, in the book of Leviticus, that God set up the system of high priests. That, it, that, if you, that, that, if, that if you were going to relate to God, a high priest had to go in the Holy of Holies on your behalf and sprinkle gl- blood on the, on the altar and on the ark, on the mercy seat, so you could be reconciled to God. No one could go in the Holy of Holies except the high priest on behalf of the people. And guess what? Hebrews 4, 14 and 16 says that Jesus is our great high priest. He went to God on our behalf so that we might be reconciled to him. Genesis 22 speaks of Abraham and Isaac on Mount Moriah. God tells Abraham, I want you to kill your son. And you can imagine how excruciating that was. And Abraham lifts up his knife. He's about to kill his son Isaac. And God says, Abraham, Abraham. I don't want you to kill him. It was a test. And at that moment they hear rustling in the bushes and there's a ram caught in the thicket and that ram becomes the sacrifice that dies in Isaac's place. In other words, God provided salvation for Isaac. He had this ram as a substitute for Isaac. And Romans 5.8 says that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. In other words, Jesus is the substitute that God provided for us. That ram in the thicket is a picture of Christ. Leviticus 16, we see the Day of Atonement and the sacrificial system, the different animals, they would have to kill the blood that would have to be shed. Hebrews 9 indicates that Jesus is the ultimate sacrifice for sin. Have you ever wondered why God set up this elaborate system of killing bulls and lambs and goats? What was the big deal? Every time an innocent animal was killed for for the people of Israel, they were reminded that the innocent must die for the guilty. Blood must be shed if we're going to be forgiven by God. They all pointed to the ultimate sacrifice of Jesus Christ dying on the cross, shedding his blood for you and for me. And then in Leviticus 16, on the Day of Atonement, listen to this. Uh, a priest would take one of the, the goats brought to the tabernacle and he would lay his hands on the head of the goat and he would confess all of the sins of the people. Symbolically transferring the sins to that goat. And then the goat would would be led away into the wilderness. And the people would see the goat being led away and they would say, God is taking away our sins. You know what John the Baptist said when he saw Jesus approach? Behold the Lamb of God who takes away our sins. If you know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, He has taken your sins away. You are forgiven by God. And these are just a few of the pictures in the Old Testament. We could go on and on. So God not only promised salvation, He he foreshadowed salvation through prophecies and through types or pictures. But then we see salvation is commenced. Over in Galatians chapter 4, verses 4 and 5, the Bible says, When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. In other words, in God's sovereign heart and in in His perfect timing, He sent Jesus to finish the work of redemption. He had promised it. He had foreshadowed it. 
Now it was time to complete it. He commenced salvation by sending His Son, which leads us to the cross. Jesus grew and lived a perfect life. He never sinned. He went to the cross of His own volition, and dying there on the cross, keeping all this background we just talked about in view, He said, to Telestai. It is finished. In other words, we see here, in this one word, Salvation accomplished. Salvation accomplished. Jesus triumphantly accomplished His mission. The word to Telestai is unfamiliar to us, but it was used by various people in everyday life in those days. A servant would use it when reporting to his or her master. The root word from that word to Telestai is teleo. It fundamentally means to carry out the will of somebody, whether of oneself or another and so to fulfill obligations. So listen, when Jesus hanging on the cross says to Telestai, in essence what he's saying is this, mission accomplished. Mission accomplished. All that God said he would do is being completed, accomplished in this moment through my sacrificial death. Salvation accomplished. James Montgomery Boyce writes, Christ's words were not the final gasping sob of a defeated man or even the firm deliberate declaration of one who was resigned to his fate. They were a triumphant declaration that the turning point in history had been reached and that the work of Jesus, uh, that Jesus had been sent into the world to do had been done. So Jesus triumphantly accomplished his mission. That's what he means when he says, Tetelestai. But it also means that Jesus completely paid for our sins. I shared this uh, last year when we went through the book of Colossians. But in Colossians 2, it says that all of us, as sinners against a holy God, have a certificate of debt. In the first century, if, if you were brought to court for crimes, when you were sentenced, they would write all of your crimes on a certificate of debt, and they would nail that certificate over your jail cell. So anyone could walk by and say, oh, he's in jail for robbery. Or whatever your crime was. The Bible says we all have a certificate of debt. We've all rebelled against God. Would anyone care to have their certificate of debt read before the congregation this morning? All the areas you've blown it. All the areas you've messed up. All the areas I've blown it. All the areas I, I wouldn't want you reading my certificate of debt. I promise you that. But we all have one. We've all sinned against God. But the Bible says in Colossians 2 that when Jesus Christ was hanging on the cross, he took our certificate of debt, all of our sins, and he nailed it to his own cross. In other words, he was was dying for all of our crimes, taking the penalty for all of our rebellion. He took our certificate and took ownership for it. He nailed it to his own cross. Now here's the neat thing. When someone in the first century had served their time, they would come back before the judge or magistrate, and, and the judge would say, okay, here's your certificate of debt, here's all the things you did wrong, but you've served your time, you've paid your debt to society, and so you are free to go. And you know what word that judge would write over the certificate of debt? To Telestai. Paid in full. And so when Jesus Christ on the cross 
shouted, declared, to tell us die, it is finished. What he was saying is this, I've taken the certificate of debt of every man, every woman, and I've nailed it to my cross, and I've paid it in full. Salvation is accomplished, it's available. And so the debt has been paid, we are free. I'm going to just close by saying this, three quick words of implication, and this is leading into our time of response. First of all, trust in the finished work of Christ. If you're here today, listen to me, if you're here today and you're not saved, and the Holy Spirit's showing you that right now, by the way. If you're here today and you feel the Lord squeezing your heart and showing you that you're a sinner in need of a Savior, that you've never been forgiven, you don't have a relationship with God, you're far from Him, and God's showing you that. If you need to be saved today, can I tell you this? You're not saved by earning it. You're not saved by joining the church. You're not saved by being baptized. You're not saved by being a Baptist. You're not saved by being a good guy or a good gal. You're saved by trusting in what Jesus Christ did for you. It's a recognition that you can't save yourself, which is humbling, right? You can't save yourself. Your only hope is that Jesus died for you and rose from the dead. Your only hope is that your debt has been paid. Your only hope is that it is finished. And it is. To be saved, you place your faith in what Christ has done. You you place your faith in the finished work of Christ. Let me read to you what the Bible says in Romans chapter 3 about trusting in the finished work of Christ. The Bible says... There is no distinction for all of sin and fallen short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to take our wrath for us. And it says, to be received by faith. You receive God's salvation purchased by Christ by faith, by believing that Jesus is your only hope. So if you're not saved today... Trust in the finished work of Christ. Number two, if you are saved today, rest in the finished work of Christ. If you're saved, you're saved to the uttermost. Hebrews 10.14 says, For by a single offering He has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. In other words, if you're saved, you're still being sanctified. You're not perfect yet, are you? Anyone have a perfect week this past week? We all stumble and fall as God's children. We're not perfect. We are being changed. We're being sanctified. But the Bible says, even though you're not perfect, with one offering on the cross, He has perfected you. In other words, you know that you're His. You'll always be His. You'll go to heaven when you die because Jesus paid it all. So rest in the finished work of Christ. Hey, this word, to tell us die, that Jesus declared on the cross, listen, It's a perfect tense verb. And the perfect tense in the original Greek language speaks of a completed act, listen, with ongoing implications. So Jesus died on the cross and he purchased our forgiveness and that has ongoing implications in our day-to-day life, doesn't it? We're his, we'll always be his, we can rest in the finished work of Christ. And that doesn't make me want to be a lazy Christian, that sets my heart on fire. That makes me want to serve Him more. It makes me want to give my all for the one who gave His all for me. Rest in the finished work of Christ. It's finished and will always be finished. And then here's the third thing. And boy, Baptists need to hear this. You ready? Celebrate the finished work of Christ. 
celebrate the finished work of Christ. We've got to learn to let the truths that we know in our head capture our heart. Because when these truths go beyond your mind to your heart, that's where behavior change happens. When he has your heart. That's why Jesus said, worship in spirit and in truth. Truth and spirit, spirit and truth, your head and your heart. And if you can look at all of this we looked at this morning and remain unchanged, more power to you. But I want you to know that Jesus finished the work of salvation. And that ought to set our souls on fire. Celebrate the finished work of Christ. So here's the point. Jesus, in perfect obedience to the Father, completed the work of redemption when he died in our place on the cross. Aren't you glad today that it is finished? Victory is ours. Not because we're good, but because Jesus paid it all.